Good morning, officially. Great to see all of you here. It was nice having this celebration time with our servant leaders, our elders and deacons and officers, and uh, already working behind the scenes a little bit. I've been in a couple of meetings and just really appreciate the leadership that Shelly's bringing and all of you are bringing in leadership, leading the teams uh, that are so important and integral to the, uh, to the service of the church. The elders are a very dedicated group as well as the deacons, and uh, I've, I've appreciated the interactions I've already been able to have with them. Let's recap last week just a little bit. We began last week this four-week study of looking at people who are transitional figures in the scriptures. The series called From One Thing to Another, and even as First Christian Church is in a transition period moving from one thing to another, we can learn from these characters who weren't particularly known as identifiable leaders or particularly people of prominence, but nevertheless played a key role in the scriptures and the story of the Hebrew people moving forward and ultimately to us as well. Four ordinary people who lived through great periods of transition. Now remember, we were going to look at one key principle, one takeaway at the end of every message. And last week we learned that Caleb and the Grasshoppers, not a band, uh, but men Moses selected. And then we had Caleb and Joshua had totally different conclusions to what the grasshoppers had reported from going in and spying out the promised land. And that one true principle came from the fact that Caleb and Joshua calculated the God factor into the equation, into the picture as they saw that promised land and the opportunity that God had presented. The key principle from week one the God factor makes all the difference in a person's point of view, a person's perspective, and their decisions. Now today, we're looking at life events that have challenged transitions for you. We can feel sometimes like, uh, like we have more than our share. In um, 2012, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And uh, at 56 years old, it was uh, something my father had about the same age, and, and uh, so began to evaluate uh, opportunities for treatments and selected a, a radiation process that required me to be there for those treatments 43 consecutive days. And so I entered into those treatments, and uh, now 10 years later, uh, it's, everything's fantastic. It's been a great uh, result from that whole experience, but it gives you pause, doesn't it? It makes you stop and think of this transition of, of things that are going on, the challenges that we face. Maybe it's a loss of a job, a change in a relationship, the, a divorce, a, a relocation, or an illness for yourself or someone else, or even the death of a loved one. Transitions force choices and decisions. Let me say that again. Transitions force Choices and decisions. Often choices and decisions we didn't invite, but nevertheless, they're there. Today we're looking at the story of Ruth. And in a matter of four brief chapters in the Bible, we hear her story unfold. Let's look at some of the things she experienced. The death of a husband, the death of a father-in-law, poverty and insecurity, Relocation to a foreign country. Scrounging for food just to get by and taking scraps from the field to try to, to help uh, satisfy the needs that she and her, 
her mother-in-law had. A room full of sleeping men. She had to experience this whole process and put herself at risk in a very dangerous circumstance. Well, all of those built up and built up till finally her future was decided by the spin of a wheel. That spin of that wheel of fortune. Now, now the wheel of fortune has been on forever, it seems like, since the 70s. But in 1983, Pat Sajak and Vanna White took over. More than 8,000 shows later, they're still doing that. Now, they have announced that they're going to kind of put an end to it at some point. But when I hear the words, wheel of fortune, and I hear that music playing, I'm immediately taken back to the mid to late 80s when my first daughter, Lindsay, was a toddler. Lindsay loved Wheel of Fortune. And even to this day, when I hear the words or I hear the song or the, uh, the, the tune, I smell SpaghettiOs. Because she sat in her high chair every night and when she would wave at Vanna and she would eat SpaghettiOs. I can't escape it. It's torture still. But that whole experience, that Wheel of Fortune, we got excited because people were going to win a car, they're going to win a trip, they're going to win money, but all depending on that Wheel of Fortune. Well, for Ruth, her Wheel of Fortune consisted of spins on the Wheel of Life, not just a game show. Well, she faced life and death choices, decisions that ultimately shaped the future of the Hebrew people resulting in ripple effects all throughout history that led to the birth of Jesus. Let's dig in the details. Naomi, her husband and two sons, left Bethlehem to live in Moab because of a famine. Her husband dies, Naomi's husband dies, and the two sons get married to Moabite women. One was Orpah and one was Ruth. Then both of their husbands died, the sons of Naomi. Naomi and her two daughters-in-law are left with, with no men to care for them. Think about that. In that day and time, the whole support system was dependent on being attached to a man in some fashion for, for, uh, for safety, for housing, for food, all of those things. It was sort of a precursor to the feudal system because if you were in this spot without property, without anything else, you really didn't have much of an existence or opportunity for a long life at all. Well, Naomi hears that the Lord is providing food for the people of Judah. And she decides to go back home to Bethlehem. And she pressures her daughters-in-law to return with her and with the Moabat families. Here comes spin number one for Ruth. She pleads with Naomi to take her with her to Bethlehem. Now, it's a spin of the wheel because... When she makes this plea, she has no idea what that's ultimately going to mean. She has no idea what that's going to cause and what the ripple effect might be. But she pleads with her and says, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. She was leaving the known for the unknown. She had connected herself to Naomi and the family and, and Naomi's connections in even Bethlehem. 
and linked her life to that, that relationship. Risking life in a foreign land and moving from one thing to another, that connection that she had to community, the connection with Naomi, provided a lifeline. That's what we get from connection and community. Those moments of transition, those moments when we're, what the, the world is this way one day and something happens and we're facing a transition and choices and decisions. We need a lifeline. We need some way to connect and, and see a future and a relationship with God and relationship with others. Well, after arriving in Bethlehem, Naomi decided to wear their circumstances on her sleeve. Her name Naomi meant pleasant. But Naomi reached out and said, Call me Mara, which means bitter. The Lord has afflicted me. Well, Ruth understood the circumstances they were in. She knows that her deceased father-in-law had a relative, a man named Boaz, who owned some fields in the area. Here comes spin number two for Ruth. She goes and asks permission from Naomi to go to the field and pick up the leftover grain. The risk of being attacked by the men was, was great. She was a foreigner in, a, in, a, in a, not her own land. And with that by itself and being a woman, she was at great risk. But we find that that connection to the community, that connection to Naomi and the family, provided courage as well. It provides, it gives birth to courage. Because that connection underpins who we are. That provides a foundation for our relationships and our understanding of where we fit in the world, even though it's dangerous times perhaps, or it's uncertain times. Ruth understood the need to reach out and to find a way to sustain and support the family. So she goes to the fields, and the scripture says, as she was there, just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. Remember that phrase, just then. Then, Boaz arrived, and he says, who's this new girl? Have you ever had those just-then moments? When in that one moment, just then, something changed, you recognized something different? I had an experience like that, and some of you have heard this story. On April the 10th, 2001, I was uh, deciding if I was going to head downtown to a, a groundbreaking of a building, that I had been invited to uh, this groundbreaking ceremony. It was a building that was uh, a, a partnership between UofL and the state of, Ken state of Kentucky. And I'd gotten the invitation, I thought, well, I don't know if I'll go or I'll, I'll go or not. I don't know why I'd go, but might as well, I'm not doing anything else. So just then, I decided I would go. And that day, we broke the ground on that building, and I was introduced during the mingling time to a person at the University of Louisville who was head of the Brown Cancer Center, Don Miller. And then I was introduced to Don because he had been developing a cancer drug or working on a discovery drug that they had identified. And he had tried to start a business when he was in Birmingham around this discovery, this invention, and didn't have any luck. And he'd been brought to Kentucky and to uh, the Brown Cancer Center and was looking for another partner. So I became the founding CEO with in partnership with Don to start Aptamera, this company that was going to take that particular drug candidate that they'd really accidentally discovered. As I've shared with some of you, the, 
they were experimenting on a, on a prostate cancer drug and they needed a control drug, which means you just make up something to test it against that's supposed to be fairly benign. And the experimental drug was not doing anything, but all this control drug that they just, just created by random was killing cancer cells. And so they started investigating and found out that sure enough, it was this randomly created, serendipitous creation that was killing the cancer cells. So that was the drug candidate that we took in and we began to develop and move toward human clinical trials. And in August of 2003, little more than 24 months, we entered an FDA clinical trial. We didn't know at the time, I'd never done pharmaceuticals, I didn't know that it was supposed to take six to eight years before you can get to that point. We just mapped out what was supposed to happen and started knocking down the barriers and we were very fortunate as well as things transpired. But that first cohort of patients who took that drug were stage four cancers people not expected to be alive a month from then or six weeks from then. And so we created that opportunity, that FDA approved, uh, that FDA trial. And some 10 years later, one of the gentlemen who was in that first trial uh, reached out and spoke to uh, shareholders of the company. You see, it had a 10-inch diameter tumor from pancreatic cancer in his abdomen. And he'd taken that first iteration, that first dose of that, tri uh, that trial drug. And the doctors could not find any scar tissue, any representative, any kind of trace of that cancer a couple of years after he began that treatment. So just then, that just then moment, when I sort of casually decided to go to this groundbreaking, created a transition and a, a difference-making uh, opportunity. So you never know what those things are going to happen, what things are going to happen when you spin that wheel, that life's wheel. Well, there was that just then moment when Boaz was there and said, who's this new girl? So Boaz steps up protection for Ruth and guarantees that she'll gather plenty of grain to support her and her mother-in-law and her, and her sister-in-law. Naomi learns that it's Boaz, known as the guardian redeemer, that male figure that's connected to her husband that is responsible to have a guardianship over uh, the widow and, and the children and related. Well, here's where things get even more interesting and dangerous. At Naomi's instructions, she, Ruth is challenged to do something that is a really a huge spin of the wheel of life. It's spin number three for her. Ruth is told to go to the threshing floor where the men have been working all day and hide and wait until they all fall asleep. Now think about how scandalous this is. She's asked to go and wait until all these men are asleep and then to go and lay at the feet of Boaz, uncover his feet, and then he, upon his awakening, she tells him who she is and that he's her guardian redeemer and that needs her protection, and needs his protection. Boaz covers her with his cloak, symbolizing that protection. And we see that, that again, this community and this connection to Naomi and, and her faith and her family provide safety through Boaz. Community provides connections, offers a lifeline, gives birth to courage, and provides safety. 
Well, Boaz meets with the elders and another relative because he understood that, that there was, in fact, another relative of Naomi's husband, deceased husband, who was at a little bit higher standing than Boaz. So Boaz takes a spin of the wheel on Ruth's behalf. He calls the elders together and, and brings all these people, and he, and he pitches the need to buy Naomi's land and property to this other relative. And the other relative said, that sounds great. I can expand my holdings. I can have uh, much more property to manage. It'll be much more fruitful for me. And as he sucked the guy in, Boaz says, oh, by the way, uh, if you buy the land, you're also obligated to marry Ruth. And the guy backs out. He decides against it because he didn't want to risk his property that he built up. So Boaz buys the land and marries Ruth. Ruth wins. Connection, provide a lifeline, give birth to courage, provide safety, and establish a home. In this amazing story, Ruth goes from one thing to another. She goes from being a Moabite woman to being a part of a Hebrew family. She goes from being a widow, being pressured to return to, to the relatives, to being Naomi's companion in Bethlehem. From a position in life lower than a servant to being the wife of a wealthy Hebrew man. And in the end, from poverty and uncertainty to grandmother of a king, King David. Several weeks ago, I was browsing the internet and I, I tend to look at other churches' websites on occasion just to kind of see what they're doing, what they're up to. And I came across this community church in Nebraska. And they had some videos that they were sharing on their website of people's stories and how they got connected to the church. One of the women sharing her story was named Danny. I'd like to read the transcript of her comments. She says, I grew up Catholic but never really had a relationship with God. As I grew older, I felt like something was missing in my life. I was a happy person, but internally there was always that struggle, that guilt, fear, and shame. It always felt like I was weighted down. I didn't have that desire to know God or to go to church. I knew I needed to change things, but I wasn't taking that step to do so. I went to a woman's group after we moved and felt very uncomfortable and overwhelmed. I'd take that one step and then I'd go back five steps. I knew I needed to do something to get me to where I wanted to be. Now, Danny was invited by her sister-in-law to attend the church and also to get to this woman's group. Danny said, I was so uncomfortable. I felt like an outcast. I was the only one in the room that didn't have a relationship with God. I kept going just to see what would happen. I kept seeing these women have a relationship with God. I saw their love and faith in God's plan, and I knew that was what I was missing. I kind of felt envious of their relationship with God. At that time, I had a close friend who had just lost a baby. It wasn't the first time. She reached out to a couple of women in the group, and they dropped everything and came to her home and prayed with her. This was crazy. We'd only known these women for a few weeks, and they dropped everyone. It was just then, just then, that I was all in. I want that goodness in my life. I want to live my life with purpose. A couple of weeks went by, and I started to open my mind and heart to God. It was very emotional for me. I was actually speaking with God 
for the very first time in my life. I was ready to give my life to Christ. I didn't have to know the Bible. I can't recite a single scripture, but I'm here, and it's okay. What a story. A community making a difference. The one takeaway from Ruth's story today. Connection and community provide a lifeline, give birth to courage, provide safety, and establish a home. Everyone faces challenges of moving from one thing to another. Let's commit to each other and those around us that when someone in our community takes hold to spin the wheel, the First Christian Church stands ready to be the connection and the community. Amen.